Hello there, my name is Jenny Vasquez Newsom, and I am the guest host of season two of Mission Megaphone, a podcast production of Growth Network Podcast. In this season of Mission Megaphone, we are amplifying the overlooked leadership experiences and expertise of leaders of color. These conversations will challenge traditional definitions of leadership, disrupting the status quo by centering the skill, ingenuity, and capabilities of impactful BIPOC identifying leaders from across industries. My guest today is Selena Wilson, Chief Executive Officer of the East Oakland Youth Development Center. Thank you so much, Selena, for joining in this conversation today. Yes, thank you for having me. It's a true joy, a true pleasure. Really appreciate the work that you're doing to uplift voices like mine, voices that aren't always uplifted. So yeah, appreciate it. Well, I'd love to start broadly. Tell us a little bit more about what you do in your work, in life, even broadly, however you want to define that. Absolutely. So in order to kind of understand what I'm doing now, I kind of have to give you a walk down memory lane. Um, so I am from Oakland, California, specifically East Oakland, specifically Deep East Oakland, uh, which for those listening from Oakland understand the significance of that. It's the place where the Black Panthers held their school that ended up becoming a Blue Ribbon award-winning school. It's a place that just has a really strong legacy in terms of both Black and Brown, social justice, uh, a lot of movement specifically around socioeconomic justice and all of those kind of issues. At the same time, East Oakland, like many Black communities in the 80s and 90s, was heavily impacted by the crack cocaine epidemic. Uh, and there's actually a book written about the level of police corruption and the involvement of the CIA and others in actually helping to flood our community with these kind of drugs, which really was an attempt to disrupt a lot of the social justice work going on. I say all that to say that I grew up in this environment that had this really interesting juxtaposition of a really strong legacy of social justice and this struggle with manufactured oppression that showed up in so many ways and was really ignited further by the crack cocaine epidemic. So backdrop of that growing up in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s in a community that was really struggling with a lot of the kind of uh, residue of that. So a lot of gun violence, a lot of substance abuse disorders, which you know, impacted people in my family very closely. A lot of issues with poverty that, you know, ended up manifesting as intergenerational poverty. So you have all of those. And then you have a high school where Swahili is one of the foreign languages offered. You have schooling where I had mostly Black teachers who took the time to teach us about Mansa Musa and the Black Panther Party and all of these great things about our legacy and history that were not in the history books. So Growing up, we sang the Black National Anthem at assemblies. Never went to a school <laughs> K through 12 where that wasn't a norm. And so I'd say all that to say that a really big part of my village was this place called the East Oakland Youth Development Center. This center had a beautiful mural up front with Malcolm X and Cesar Chavez and all these social justice leaders. And I would go to this place and do all these free wonderful classes with black and brown teachers who were from the community teaching everything from West African dance to computer science. And 
started going there when I was four years old and it became a really key fixture in my life. It's where I had my first job as a teenager. It's where I was pushed to actually apply for college, which for me started out as community college and went from there now that I have my graduate degree and was just really a stabilizing force that was critical to me, given that my parents, who are very nurturing, very loving, were also dealing with a lot of instability and struggle. And so had it not been for a place like EOYDC, I don't know that I would have graduated high school, certainly not on time. (laughs) I don't know that I would be where I am now. And so life kind of... um, And I really feel it's a divine purpose, really. Uh, Life allowed me to find my way back to the village that raised me. And Mm -hmm. I have become the first alumni of EOYDC to serve as its CEO, which is a tremendous blessing. We'll talk a little bit more about how I landed there. But again, I feel like it's very much a divine calling. It's been such a beautiful kind of full circle experience to be able to run the place that I was raised in in that way with a team, and we'll talk more about really how I feel about leadership being about cultivating an ecosystem and not really this kind of lone individual running things. I'm really just mm-hmm. blessed to play my position and to have been afforded the kind of different experiences that have equipped me to do the different things that I need to do in my role. So there's that. And then in addition to my work with EOYDC, I'm very fortunate to be able to contribute to a collective called Decolonized Design. And we're really committed to offering alternatives to what we call the diversity and inclusion industrial complex, (laughs) grounded in a framework of belonging, dignity, justice, and joy. And I want to uplift my sister and colleague, Ida Davis, who founded Decolonized Design, and we're doing a lot of work uh, on a more systemic level to really help question the status quo in, in terms of How do we apply abolitionist approaches? How do we apply ancestral knowledge and approaches to work within these systems and institutions? And thinking about what institutions need to be abolished outright. And then where do we just have institutions, one that are worth investing in abolishing certain practices, but maintaining the institution? And even at EOYDC, there are certain practices that we've had to abolish in order to really, really do the work that our ancestors would have us be proud of doing. And also, again, decolonize our minds, decolonize our ways of being, and move forward in a prosperous way. That was a very long answer. (laughs) So good. I appreciate your understanding that the context from which within we've experienced, our backgrounds, just the spaces that we've been in shape what we do today. Uh, When we ask that question of what do you do, there's, you know, the very surface level answer, but the richness and depth and realities that inform our present moment. I I appreciate you sharing that with us because that is important. Um, So thinking about that trajectory and kind of now leading the organization that was such an important part of your youth and your, your life, what have been those critical moments that just informed that trajectory? How did that happen for you? What were those critical turning points? Yeah, you know, I think hindsight is truly um, twenty twenty, and there were so many pivotal moments. So I, I won't go through all of them, but a few I think key turning points. You know, again, I started when I started going there. That was a key 
turning point. So one of my mother's friends took me there for West African Dance. And that was our introduction to EOIDC. And interestingly enough, shout out to Sister Linda Johnson, who taught the class. Uh, she was also uh, attended the church we ended up going to. So there was this interconnection there. And then I think another key turning point was when my now predecessor, Miss Regina Jackson, stepped in into her role in about 1996 or so, 1995. I think it was like 10 or 11 years old when she came on board and really took me under her wing as a mentee, as she did for so many other young people. And that became a critical turning point. And we'll talk more about why. Me really staying involved with EOYDC at the behest of those who were really committed. I mean, there was a time I remember when I was, I think, a sophomore or junior in high school, one of my friends died very violently, uh, was murdered. I was very depressed. I stopped going to school, stopped going to EOYDC. And Kwame Toto, who was the head of the physical development department at the time, knocked on my door because I didn't have a phone in my house. We were poor, like for real, no mm -hmm. phone. So he came to my house and was like, where you been at? <laughs> and mm -hmm. so him coming to get to me made a huge difference. I don't know if I would have come back or when I would have come back if he didn't do that. Then I think about me getting involved in a student advocacy group. They did other things, but it was the advocacy and the student lobbying that really kind of opened my mind about mm -hmm. how you can work within systems to create change in addition to you know, more disruptive practices that I had been familiar with. And that was the California Association of Student Councils. And so between my work, and that's also where I met Ida Davis, who I ended up then partnering with down the line to do this work through decolonized design. So there were those key moments. Another key turning point for me, and this gets to the, you know, point of community and how important it is. I mentioned that I started out community college. Then I went to get my undergrad degree and I was working full-time, going to school full-time, really hustling to be able to get it done. And so when I was done, I was like, whew, done. I have arrived, got my college degree, I'm good. And then I remember a mentor was like, so when are you going to grad school? I was like, what? <laughs> I said, <laughs> um, I thought that the goal was to get a college degree and did that. Why do I have to go back to school? And so she started having other people uh, from this student group called me who went to grad school to talk about like, yes, Lynn, you should consider it. And I was like, okay. Had no idea what to do. Uh, I was on the debate team briefly in high school. So I thought, okay, I'll go to law school. That sounds good. I like law and order. You know, it's fun. <laughs> I like to argue. So again, still struggling uh, financially in a much better position than my parents have been in, but I didn't have you know, a thousand plus dollars to spend prepping for the LSAT. So I reached out to a mentor. Again, this theme of mentorship and mm -hmm. people pouring into me who actually helped coach the moot court team that I was on in high school and told them they were actually a married couple, a black and brown couple that were both lawyers. <laughs> and they said, we'll pay for it for you. So they paid for my LSAT prep class, did it, took the LSAT, did okay and started applying. And then in these law school apps, they were like, so why do you want to go to law school? And I didn't have a good answer. So then I started, you know, I was working with kids at the time, kind of continuing that trajectory that I started at EOYDC. And I was working in a pretty affluent community at this point. So there were a lot of lawyers. So I started asking all these different lawyers around me, hey, could we grab some coffee? Could you talk to me about what you do? 
And then after kind of hearing their day-to-day, I realized, oh, I don't think I want to be a lawyer. Had an existential crisis. I was crying, sad, because I was like, oh, these people invested in me. Everyone's counting on me to do this thing. And so I had to do some soul searching. I ended up volunteering at a conference, again, a student lobbying conference. I was the adult on site at a whole 25 years old. (laughs) Uh, But I was with all these high school and college students, and they were putting together their proposals that they were going to present to the State Board of Education. And I remember the night that I had the kind of epiphany. We were up till 5 a.m. putting the finishing touches on these proposals, and I was exhausted but I was so happy. I was like, and again, I, I'm not being paid. I am volunteering. I was like, yeah. I really enjoy this. And I thought about what about this do I enjoy? Well, I enjoy working with young people. I enjoy thinking about systems change and thinking about, you know, how can we try to make changes within these systems? Uh, you know, I think this is kind of along the lines of what I want to do. So I remember I took a class in undergrad called organizational behavior, and they were talking about this concept of change management. And so, again, went back to someone who reported to me previously, the head of the business department at my undergrad, and was like, hey, want to know, what are some careers that I can do in this space? And she introduced me to the concept of consulting, uh, mm-hmm. management consulting. Hadn't even heard of it, so... I said, okay. And she also talked to me about some other options and advised me that if I wanted to be a practitioner, I should find a program that focuses on that as opposed to the more kind of theoretical side. So for that, I started doing some digging and I found a program out of Northwestern, which was the MSLOC, Masters of Science and Learning and Organizational Change Program. And again, this is why I truly believe my path in a lot of ways has been divinely inspired. They were doing rolling admissions. I applied to that school. That was the only school that I applied to at that time. And going back to CASC, the student lobbying group, I was asked to help a conference in Chicago in July. I get a call from Northwestern in June. Hey, we'd like to meet with you. Any chance you could come out here in July? And I was already going to be there. Not only that, but one of the mentors that was coming with us from CASC was a Northwestern alumni. So she took me to her alma mater, was already out there, ticket paid for, all of that. I was able to observe from classes, meet with some of the faculty, and I knew then this is what I'm going to need not apply to anymore. And then wow. it manifested. And so I went for my interview in July, was admitted and moved out there in August. <laughs> So all that being said, that was a critically important moment. And I remember our very first assignment, we had to do these individual learning plans where we had to outline our short-term goals and our long-term goals. And the short-term goal that I stated is that I wanted to do some consulting at a corporate consulting firm just to kind of learn from that sector. And then I wanted to longer term return to a youth-serving organization such as EOYDC. That's the one that I named. In the consulting, I named Deloitte specifically because Deloitte had done some pro bono work with CASC. Fast forward, I end up landing an internship with Deloitte, which is very competitive and hard to do. Um, And I say that because, again, and I won't get into all the details of it, there were these little things that allowed me 
to build relationships with folks. So even though my resume did not list a top tier undergrad, as did a lot of my counterparts, and even though I did not have any corporate experience, I was able to really build the relationships and and show that I was going to be able to add tremendous value in this space. And I remember we had three rounds of interviews with Deloitte for the summer internship. And the third round, they flew us all to Atlanta. And it was like a three-day interview process. And there was a lot of, you know, smooching and whatnot. And I remember, you know, there was like a happy hour or whatever, and all the candidates are talking. And they were talking about, oh, where'd you go to undergrad? Where'd you go to undergrad? Because everybody was in grad school uh, in this recruiting pipeline. And a lot of, you know, Harvard, Yale, Cal, Stanford. And I was like, oh, well, I went to community college and then I transferred to this small school called Holy Names University. And one of the women was like, oh, wow, that's so brave of you to admit you went to community college. (laughs) And I said, well, I mean, not really. (laughs) Yes, that was said to me. It was very straightforward. She was serious. She really felt like that would have been like a horrifically embarrassing thing to to say. But I mean, for me, I said, oh, no, not at all, because I'm here with you, aren't I? Uh, so like we clearly my community college education did something for me and I've never felt any shame in in any of that and in fact have one of my junior college uh honor roll certificates on my wall right next to my master's degree from Northwestern in my office so that when my students come in they can see if you're going to community college nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with that right you know that was an interesting moment. I had many other moments like that, but needless to say, did the internship at Deloitte, got an offer to return and was very transparent from the beginning. My first round interview, they asked me, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, not here. I plan to come work for the firm for a few years. I'm really eager to learn, but I do want to return to the nonprofit sector. And they totally embraced that. And in fact, I ended up getting tapped to do some of the pro bono work with some of the youth serving nonprofits that Deloitte partnered with. So in my experience, my authenticity has never hurt me. It really has not. It has just protected me and ensured that I was in the places that I needed to be. I'm going to play that recording back to myself all the time. I love that. My authenticity has not hurt me. Nope. And anytime it may have seemed that it hurt me, it protected me. Right. Because if there are places that I cannot be my authentic self, I don't want to be there. That's right. You know, it's only a matter of time before it's going to become toxic to me. Not to say that any organization is perfect, but I did really appreciate that Deloitte from the very beginning supported my longer term ambitions to go back to nonprofit and to go back to community work and to be able to do some of that while I was there. Uh, while still doing what I wanted to do in terms of learning for the private sector. So I did that for a few years. And meanwhile, I continued volunteering with EOYDC, doing pro bono consulting. And about two and a half years after I joined the firm, I felt like, you know what? I feel like I've learned what I needed to learn in order to be able to go back from whence I came and help these mission-driven organizations be more efficient, more effective. Um, in what we're trying to do. We need some of these tools. And we'll talk a little bit more about what tools benefit us and what tools actually further our own oppression. But that being said, I was looking to go back and I applied for the Broad Fellowship. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it 
places people in the private sector into leadership positions in the education sector. And in the course of this, I talked to my mentor, Regina Jackson, about my interests. And she was like, well, what do you feel about coming back here? I think I got an opportunity coming up for you. And so within a couple months, I was back at EOYDC serving as the vice president of organizational effectiveness. And again, it was like everything that experience up to that point professionally became very purposeful. So Hmm. EOYDC was in the midst of a transition and that transition involved a lot of the kind of components that I was helping corporate clients with from like new tech adoption to design work and all the process design, all these things that the organization needs that, you know, stretch beyond the programmatic piece because they had that on lock. It's like, okay, well, what about all this backend stuff? I was able to apply those, those tools in order to help them. Meanwhile, I had also been on my own personal journey to kind of, again, decolonize my mind of some of the things that I had been taught. So this idea that, you know, what does it mean to look professional? What does it mean to be professional? And having been in spaces that were predominantly white work environments and observing things that were, you know, the equivalent, but just culturally different. So that's when I realized, like, wait a minute, white folks, they use their colloquialisms at work. They use their slang at work. Right. Mm -hmm. So why can't I, if I so choose, they have their version of, you know, casual hairstyles or casual clothing or whatever. If it looks like box braids on me and a messy bun on you, why can't I do that? Right. So kind of realizing and starting to question things I had experienced in these environments, like, wait a minute, uh, I've been bamboozled a little bit. Right. So even, I mean, subconscious things like I always felt like I needed to straighten my hair before a job interview or slick it back mm-hmm. or whatever. Same. And, you know, and right now it's a little wet, but it gets real big. And the idea that big hair is unprofessional or messy. And it's like, well, no, this is how how it grows out of my head. And, you know, I I put a lot of products and care into it. Like, it's not unprofessional. Or, you know, why can't I wear a nose ring? Or why can't I have visible tattoos when I'm meeting with multi-million dollar venture capitalists who have tattoos up to their neck? (laughs) So... Mm-hmm. I just started to question a lot of things, which, again, became purposeful because I'm going back into the space where we're working with black and brown kids, trying to equip them with the tools and the skills that they need to thrive and be successful in this world. But recognizing like, wait, why are we teaching them that they need to code switch when mm-hmm. we don't tell white folks they need to code switch? Like, let's flip that. Let us say the same thing that is said to folks that are in the majoritized community. Be versatile, right? There's a difference between saying like, yeah, be versatile. The way that you speak to a five-year-old versus the way that you're going to speak to an adult in a professional setting, it's going to be different. But you don't need to change the tone of your voice. You don't need to like Mm -hmm. do all that. Just really be mindful about the fine line between betraying yourself And stepping out of your comfort zone. You got to step out Mm. of your comfort zone, but never so far that you are betraying yourself. And so I I became really passionate about youth development, helping young people figure out what is that line for me? 
because it's different for everybody with, where that, that line is drawn. And so that's one of the things that I'm very passionate about. Thank you. I'd love to actually circle back to something that you mentioned around leadership and around your leadership and how you lead an organization, how you lead teams. How do you define leadership and how do you then exercise that? Like, what does that actually look like in the day to day? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I've been thinking that in a way... And I don't know, you know, I've grown up in the context of our American society, and I don't know if other parts of the world struggle with this quite the same. I think in some ways, the conventional way that we think about leadership is overvalued in that we think of it as a quality that requires that you have somebody is this leader, and then there are people who follow. And the leader is superior in a way, right? We don't always say that, but that's kind of implied that like leader has all these special qualities and they're great. And then there are these followers who aren't as valuable or important. And so I've been thinking, and particularly in the, the talk of community, recently we've been talking about putting together the steering committee and there was a talk of, well, we want people who demonstrated leadership and da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, well, do they need to have demonstrated hmm. what we think of as leadership? in a formal way or service, because I might not have a leadership role, but I may do a tremendous amount of work in my community. Now, when we want to get philosophical, you can say, yes, that those are still leadership qualities, but a lot of times people will take themselves out of the conversation when we're talking about leadership, if they don't have a formal role or they don't have people following them or whatever. So I say all that to say leadership to me, what it should be about is one, having a deep commitment to your own self-actualization. You should be leading yourself right first. Mm -hmm. And so really thinking about what is my own practice that I am doing to ensure that I am co-creating my life and who I am and not letting all these external things drive me. So I am the leader of my life is one, in which case, yes, all of us should be doing that. But that's not often what we're talking about when we talk about leadership. And then beyond that, I think you should think of yourself as a steward. A leader should really be a steward. I am stewarding whatever it is that I am charged to lead, right? So to me, as a steward, my responsibility is to nurture, is to protect, is to prune anything that could harm the ecosystem, right? So that's what I am. I see leaders as what we should be as a steward of whatever ecosystem that we're charged to lead. And within an ecosystem, you understand and appreciate the value of everything within that ecosystem, right? So we need this, you know, these little microbes and fungi. We need the trees. We need these different species, we need the bee, we need the hummingbird, we need all of these things, right? And so a true leader appreciates that and doesn't get caught in whatever is the most visible or the most prominent or the most beautiful to everyone else, right? Because we know you can't steward ecosystem if you're just hyper-focused on one aspect of that ecosystem. It's going mm. to collapse. That's that's how I think it. That ethos, it resonates so much for me. 
what does that look like in organizational structures in kind of the the way in your background in organizational behavior and policies and kind of like setting up the systems that can cultivate an ecosystem? What does that look like? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And, you know, I want to shout out my professor, Dory Blessoff, uh, who exposed me to the work of Margaret Wheatley, who talks about thinking about organizations as an organism as opposed to a machine. Because a lot of folks who came up in the, you know, industrialized way of thinking about organizations, it's thought of as a machine and cogs and all this kind of stuff. But really, it is an organism. And again, when we talk about the ecosystem within any organism, uh, it is evolving. It requires osmosis, right? It requires, or rather, equilibrium. There's a certain harmony that you have to ensure is there. And so I think that my role within my team as a leader is to, one, deeply understand the different components of the ecosystem that is our team, that is the community that we're in, that are all the factors that impact the team and the community that we're in, so forth and so on. So one is to seek to understand the parts, as well as how the parts come together to create the whole. And to really keep a pulse on, again, that equilibrium, like what is shifting within this ecosystem such that we need to be responsive. So are we in a drought? Okay, we're in a drought. So what do we got to do to make up for that? Is there heavy rainfall? What do we have to do? So it's this degree of really paying attention and being adaptive and responsive in understanding that there are always going to be these shifts. And also being clear on what is everyone here to do and giving them what they need to do what they need to do. So going back to the analogy, we need the bees to pollinate the flowers. Is there some barrier to that? Okay, let's take care of the barrier. Mm. We, we need this uh, river to be able to ensure all the root systems are getting hydrated. Is there a barrier? Okay, that's my job. So it's not my job to pollinate the flowers and do all the things. My job is to make sure that everyone can do what they need to do to the best of their ability and that they still feel energized and supported and taken care of in doing those things. That analogy is so good. I think that's exactly <laughs> right. Like organizations are living beings in a sense. Yes. Um, they are alive and they're fueled by those that are there. And that context shifts all the time. Um, so I love that. That's going to stick with me for a while. I want to ask, so really kind of thinking about this idea of like untapped leadership, this work that I'm trying to do of like just uncovering the overlooked capacities that we have just because we sometimes think about leadership as this one person or this, you know, one that's been chosen to save X, Y, Z. I don't know. You know, these really antiquated models. When you think about untapped leadership, untapped potential, what are two things that come up for you that people should do? If someone's listening to this and say, OK, how can I uncover, maybe unlearn some of my past preconceived notions of leadership and how can I uncover my own capacities as a leader? And how can someone steward, how can someone support someone else's untapped capacity, untapped leadership? What would you say? That's a great question. Um, I think that one thing 
that we all need to be mindful of is really thinking about what do you think of when you think of a leader and why do you think that? So like literally visualize a leader. Do you see a man? Do you see a woman? What do they look like? Right. And ask yourself, why do I think that? Because I think you would be surprised at what immediately comes to your mind if you were to do that visualization exercise. And you would be even further surprised and maybe even a little bit alarmed at why you feel that way. We'll hear words like doctor or president. A man will come to your mind. And that's not because you innately feel like they are better equipped to do those things. It's because the society we're in and the programming and the messaging that we get. So I think you do have to do a little bit of deconstruction to think, why do I feel that way? Which I had to do, even within myself, as I was thinking about untapping my own authentic leadership, I had to think about, wait, why do I change the tone of my voice automatically when I'm speaking in front of certain people? It's not because they can't understand me the way that I naturally think. It's because subconsciously, I feel like my voice sounds Black. And somewhere along the way, I was taught, you don't want your voice to sound too Black. You want to sound more white. I mean, that's just if we're having a real talk. And that was a mm-hmm. subconscious thing. It wasn't something that I was just going about trying to do. And so I think that you got to peel that back. That's both when you're thinking about other people and yourself. Why do I think that's important? And there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to want to discard. What you think about that, you're going to be like, you know what? And once you be- bring it to your awareness, you will start to check for that. And that even goes for things like, you know, I work with young people and even thinking about things as simple as why do we associate wisdom with age? There's there's parts of that that are valid and there are parts of that where they might be limiting beliefs. So what you want to do is surface those limiting beliefs, both as it relates to yourself and others. One book that I love is Quiet. The author's name is escaping me right now, but she talks about why we often associate extroversion with leadership mm-hmm. when it's not so, right? It's it's that a lot of the leadership kind of positions that American society puts on a pedestal are those that are loud and spoken and in your face. But really, the more introverted, introspective leader can be and is very powerful when they tap into that. So I think question those mental models is important and then establishing new ones. And then I also think that part of what you want to do or what I try to do is really think about ancestral practices that inspire me and and thinking about whether it be directly my heritage or not, right? What are some things from ancestral wisdom, particularly when we're thinking about pre-colonial practices, there are a lot of beautiful and inspiring ways of thinking about leadership and thinking about community and about teams. So I think about the Blackfoot who inspired Maslow's hierarchy of change. But think about it in a way that resonates with me even more. Um, I think about the Iroquois and how they talk about planning for seven generations. I think about Kemet and how they talk about principles of Mayat, which include things like harmony and justice and order. I think about the principles uh, that are central to Ubuntu, 
which is this concept of humanity that is central to the way of life in South Africa, right? So there are all these different principles that I think about. Um, in addition to some strong, we think of as individuals, but understanding the ecosystem. So understanding the entire team behind a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., behind a Malcolm X and besides a Malcolm X, right? And understanding the fact that they could not and did not do anything alone and really embracing that and understanding that. I hope that answered your question, but those are some of the things that I think are are really key. Yeah. In these last couple of minutes, I'd love to hear, Selena, what is your big ambition, what big goal for this year? What, what's on top of your mind for, for your year? Yes. So what's on top of my mind for the year? Uh, again, I'm such a context person. The broader context is that where I live in deep East Oakland, I mentioned to you before, I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood with a lot of commitment to uplifting social justice and, you know, the work of our elders and ancestors. And unfortunately, in recent years, gentrification has hit very heavy. We still have a substantial Black community here, but so many of our folks are getting pushed out to communities that don't have much in the way of resources, don't have much in the way of ties to culture and community that a lot of these folks that are getting pushed out to these places have enjoyed for generations. Not only enjoyed, but cultivated. So to cultivate so much culture and so much community only to then be pushed out for other people with means to be able to come and enjoy what you've built is deeply unjust to me. And so obviously there's longer term commitment through a collaborative that EOYDC and myself are a part of called the Black Cultural Zone to build a 40 by 40 block area that will be a hub of Black life from arts and culture to commercial to residence. That said, within the next year, we won't be in that position to actually be moving folks back. So my ambition within the next year is to be able to offer satellite programming in some of these communities because we, believe it or not, have a significant number of families that are commuting 90 minutes to two hours one way to get their kids to our programming because understand how important it is for their kids to have this village, right? And so I feel compelled to go to where our people are. And so that is an unprecedented thing. We've never attempted to do it, but we are committed to doing it and to ensuring, again, you know, I, I've reflected recently that community transcends place. And while it's important, important to preserve place, and we're doing those efforts in the meantime, in between time, we need to ensure that our kids, that our elders, that our people that have been pushed out of our physical community are able to have those ties without the undue burden of sitting in traffic for hours and hours and hours each week, mm -hmm. right? So that is my big ambition. And if people want to support that ambition, I definitely would encourage them to go to our website, www.eoydc org uh and donate <laughs> yes thank you i yes i uplift that i amplify that and that's really the point of these conversations is to amplify your leadership but then also 
the collective, like the, the leadership of the communities that you're you're working with. I really thank you for sharing your gems and your time with us in conversation around leadership and just really unpacking and unlearning and rethinking, I think is what I'm taking away and what I really appreciate from your contributions. How else can folks stay in touch with you? Is there any other avenue or really just checking out at eoydc.org? Well, that's one. And, you know, I'm on the social IG. I'm Selena's Musings. I do have a YouTube called Selena's Musings, but I have not been active. Y'all can check out the old videos. Eventually, I may put some new ones up. Sure, they're good. But uh, you could get a little bit of my unfettered rambling on various subjects if you want. I will say that, uh, again, my good sis Ida and I are contemplating starting a podcast, so that may be coming soon. So if you follow Selena's Musings, you can check that out. Also encourage y'all to check out Decolonized Design and the work that we're collectively doing over there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Selena. It was so good to be in conversation with you. Thank you. Likewise. If you've ever wanted to edit your own videos or podcasts, but were overwhelmed by how complicated the software was, you are in luck. Descript, or Descript, is a magical tool that allows you to edit text as if you're editing a Google Doc. We use it for this show and use it collaboratively with clients and co-producers on all of our shows. And trust me, it's easy to learn. Click our affiliate link in the show notes to discover the magical tool for yourself. And if you want some guidance on how to learn and use it, please sign up for our Magic of Descript newsletter.